You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What matters to Margaret Atwood, the acclaimed author in conversation with Baroness Helena Kennedy QC. I just want to tell you all a little about Margaret before we uh, embark on this conversation. I mean, all of you will know that she's one of the greatest writers in the world. Uh, She's also, I mean, not just a novelist, but a poet, a literary critic, an essayist. um, But she's also many other things, uh, including an environmental activist. That's why, of course, um, her upbringing, her father and mother, both great, um, uh, um, well, both biologists, really. No, no, my mum was, no. But your mother was a great sort of naturalist and that she loved the outdoor world. My, my mum was a tomboy. She was a definitely a tomboy. And we'll get like to why she was an influence. That's just, you know, she preferred to be in the woods. Um, and, and, and being in the woods was where you spent a lot of your time as, as you were growing up. Because very of, true, yeah. yes. But as well as being one of the world's greatest writers, you are also an environmental activist, but you've become this great influence on people's lives. And apparently, if you ask people, um, more people than for most other writers say that you were someone who changed in some way their life. They say that to you, don't they, when they come and that get you yeah, to sign so their I, books? We don't go into the details. <laughs> how it changed exactly the life. <laughs> Margaret has won more prizes, I think, than any other writer. Um, you know, some of them well known to us, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Prince Asturias Award. She won the Booker Prize. She's won the Governor General's Award in Canada twice. But in all of those prizes has also again and again been shortlisted because, you know, she is one of the stars in our firmament. Um, as I say, a writer across the board, but best known for her novels. Um, and, but I do want to recommend to all of you that you go off and read her poetry as well, which is sublime. Um, you're really prolific. I mean, are you one of those people who gets up at five o'clock every morning and says, I have to do seven hours or no, something? No, I'm, I'm not even really prolific. I'm just quite old. So if you, <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you take the number of years and then the number of books... And divide the number of books into the number of years. You mean you're not really prolific at all? Not really. <laughs> as prolific as Joyce Carol Oates. I'm just a slouch compared to that. Oh, I see. Uh, but okay. to answer your question, no, I don't get up in the morning in that way. I'm glad. Uh, although I might get up in the morning, as I used to do in, in high school, and think, oh, no. <laughs> and turn over. <laughs> it's, and... it's due tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so I can no longer pull the all-nighters. But there is quite a lot of procrastination involved. But it gives you thinking time. Um, that's Someone, a very nice way of putting it. But somebody also told me that you could read, that, that she once gave you a book, and that you got up the following morning and came and told her exactly what you thought of it, because you'd obviously spent you know, an hour or two and managed to get through this thing. Are you a very fast reader? Of- I'm, a, I'm an incessant reader. Mm-hmm. I'm also quite fast. But remember, up in the woods, nothing else to do when it rained. Yeah, so, so reading and writing. So no theater, no school, no library, um, no village, no electricity, no television, no cinema. And you went to school quite late. I mean, you didn't go to school until... No, I, I didn't f- spend a full year in school till I was 12, but I, but I went to school uh, once there was some. Yeah. But in the winters, only in the winters. I, I, I'm just going to give you some quotes about, about your writing. Uh, you're described as a scintillating wordsmith, wildly subversive, a 
a woman with a ravenous intellect. I like that, ravenous in intellect. Um, but you're seen as subversive. Um, that appeals to me. Um, in what way do you think you're subversive? Well, this is not me. You know, this I, is people I, talking about you. I know, but that's their problem. <laughs> I, I just think I'm a fairly ordinary person with, with, uh, who's, who's always right. You know, who's always right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're very clear that, um, I mean, when people say that you write, in, uh, you write science fiction, you say, no, you write social science fiction, mm. that you're actually you're writing speculative fiction. Well, um, it, it all depends on how we're going to define the terms, doesn't it? And the sad truth is that when people say science fiction, mostly they mean the rocket ships, the skin-tight clothing, and the other planets. Isn't there's no other they planets. They mostly mean that. Mm. Oh, and yes... Whereas I confine myself to this planet, not that I don't like reading about the others. I'm just not good at writing them. And I like reading about dragons too. That would be called fantasy. And when Mm -hmm. you put the dragons on other planets, that's called science fiction fantasy. And when you combine the dragons, the other planets, and um, Bronze Age weaponry, that's sword and sorcery science fiction. It's hard keeping up with it. Yeah, so therefore, if everybody else is going to do those sub uh, terms, uh, I think we need one that indicates that unfortunately none of those things will be found in my books. Otherwise, there will be some annoyed readers. But people are, but people really, you you, you are associated very much in people's minds now with this, uh, a a sense of the apocalyptic, the the kind of, if we're not careful, this is where our journey could take us. And that obviously is a source of fascination to you. It's a long, 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 long tradition, Mm -hmm. beginning even before Noah. So it's in the epic of Gilgamesh, if we must go back that far. And also in uh, Greek mythology, there was a flood. Uh, so mm. there have been these um, wipeout events. Maybe it's a diff- distant memory of some um, almost wipeout events that the human race, in fact, did go through. So it's been on our minds. And in the 19th century, we wrote so many utopias that Gilbert and Sullivan made, did a musical making fun of them called Utopia Limited. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was the form of the 19th century. They churned them out in, in huge numbers. Uh, but around the turn of the century, even before World War I, um, people started taking a darker view of the future of the human race. So writers like H.G. Wells, uh, the time traveler and War of the Worlds, but mostly the time traveler, Jack London has got yeah. one, Iron Heel. Yeah. And there are a number of them. Some of them are just kind of silly. There's one called the Purple Cloud, which is, we're never told what the Purple Cloud is. But it's um, interesting. I mean, I mean, do you think it's linked to anything? I mean, do you think it's linked to kind of great moves in, in development, you know, uh, so that when there was great technological development, then um, our natural instinct as humans is to look at where this could take us that could be yeah. negative? Well, I think there are two things that happened in the... 19th century that, that influenced this. One was the huge improvements that, in fact, really did take place. Um, mm-hmm. Think of, for instance, 
the great 19th century sewage systems. Not bad. I, I'm, I'm glad art. of it myself. Work of art. You used Look to be able it. to get go down into the Brighton one and take a tour of it. I'm not sure they're allowing you to do that anymore. But these were major... Um, and the discovery of, of what caused diseases. You know, people didn't know before. Um, so they, they saw, and the Industrial Revolution, of course, which was going to make us better every way uh, and every day in every conceivable um, area of life. And that's what people really believed. They thought we were going to keep getting better and better and that, and that it was all almost perfectible. Um, so that, the utopias came out of that belief. Um, the second thing that happened, however, was, was Charles Darwin. And mm-hmm. uh, if you can think of, of evolution, you probably know the rather erroneous uh, family tree of, of human beings, which is so widespread, beginning with the nape and more and more mm-hmm. upright posture and ending in a stockbroker. Uh, you've probably <laughs> <laughs> seen that one. The briefcase being mm-hmm. the final evolutionary development. Attached uh, to the arms. But on the other hand, if you could, if you could evolve upwards, um, he, it was then discovered that you could, you could de-evolve. You could, you could lose things that you, that you once had. And uh, this is where H.G. Wells kicked in with the time traveler. What if we evolve in a negative direction? Because that's evolution too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people started worrying about that quite a lot. And then when World War I happened and Europe tore itself apart and behaved very badly, um, they, they had to stop thinking of themselves as the pinnacle of, of human evolution. Mm. You know, it was no longer possible to think that we were going to keep getting better infinitely or that we were these uh, super beings uh, with high moral, built-in high moral standards. It just wasn't possible. Then we had a couple of real-life utopias, namely the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and Nazi Germany. And both of those were presented by their um, pushers as, um, this is going to make everything so much better for you. But it had the built-in problem of real-life utopias, subclause, first we have to get rid of those people. Yes, the, and, the, the other. Yeah. yeah, well, getting rid of those people, in fact was never over. You, know, you never got to a point where you were rid of those people and could start having this much better improved life. And it has been true also of things like Mao's China and Pol Pot's Cambodia in particular. So it became almost impossible to write utopian fiction anymore unless it was on another planet. Mm. You can still have it on another planet and be credible. Um, but we on this planet, started writing quite a few uh, look out for the future because it's going to be worse than now. We started writing those kinds of stories. The, the, the one, that, I mean, this, I, I know that um, you, you came to public attention before Handmaid's Tale, but, the, but, the, but Handmaid's Tale shot you to a kind of another level of, of being known. And, uh, and certainly for... It shot me rather slowly in point of fact. Did it really? <laughs> it, felt, it felt... It felt... <laughs> well, it, it felt... Um, Looking of, back, it yeah. seems like that. It's it, sort of like the French Revolution, which in point of fact <laughs> was very quite a slow event. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, but I do remember that it became one of the books that everybody was talking about. I mean, uh, certainly. Worse than um, that, it became one of the books that 
But unfortunate teenage boys were forced to read in school. Were forced to read in school? I'm going to ask them later how many of them were forced to read it. I don't think that any of the ones that I knew were forced to read it. Um, But it it was one of the books that that was incredibly influential for women. It's why um, because when Julia speaks about your work, um, I remember, I'm going to tell a little story, was that at at one point when I was being very rebellious with uh, the, uh, the government, um, and uh, and been given a hard time. Julia sent me um, a, a, a postcard, and it had on it this quote: "We were the people who lived in the blank white spaces on the edge of the print. It gave us more freedom." And she felt that that was about honourable rebellion. Um, and it's interesting because. She also feels that that's what this set of events over these two days are all about, about somehow writing some, trying to find a space where other things might happen, um, which are not in the mainstream, that perhaps stepping outside, going into the margin, you find interesting other possibilities. What do you think? Do you think that names, not numbers, might be doing that? (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's called putting a girl on the spot I don't, I don't, you, you, you only know these things afterwards mm. so as I say it was a slow shoot mm. and uh, nobody knew uh, that it was going to have that effect um, I thought I was writing about um, Puritan 17th century America and totalitarianisms in general um, and I'm sorry to say um, making fun of Harvard, but it also they, they well, didn't it, like that at first. But it, they've it, come round to it. Yeah, it was. It was. But it was also. Um, it spoke to many women about feminism, and and though you're you're, and you actually were writing about feminist issues before the women's movement. Yeah, we don't even need to call them feminist issues. Let's call them power structures in society. Yeah, uh, because feminist, you know, that puts it in a little. In a little box, yeah. playground all of its own just for girls. Mm. Uh, whereas you cannot change the position of women in society without also changing the position of men. Sure. It is a joined at the hip thing, and it is like one of those old uh, barometers in which um, there were two little figures. I'm sorry to say that fair weather was women and uh, storms were men. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you came at this really from. A concept of justice. I mean, it was about, you saw this and, and you wrote about the position of women, really partly because you were talking about a society that was, that was where injustice was somehow uh, inbuilt. Think, things were unequally distributed, mm-hmm. but they're unequally distributed now. Mm-hmm. And we're not just talking about gender. Yeah. We're talking about who gets what, uh, who rearranges the rules to make sure they get more. Uh, that would be crony capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and how that affects really everybody who is a part of society. And we are getting now quite dangerously close to the pre-French revolution in which too few people have got too much and too many people have got too little. And that's, that's a very unbalanced situation. And by the laws of, of physics and chemistry... There's going to be an equalizing event. There's going to be a peasant revolt. (laughs) Well, maybe not quite exactly that, but it can't go on accumulating at the top that way without something falling over. Mm -hmm. You know, it really just, it can't. 
uh, something's going to something's going to break. And as William Gibson, the SF writer, author of Neuromancer, has said, the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed. I love that quote. And that it's is, so in wonderful. fact, true. Yeah. Uh, so there are parts of the world where you're already seeing a big breakdown of previously viable infrastructures in the society because it's just not working. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. You were wondering about women. No, I, I well, I mean, I think that some people will will ask yeah. you about women, and uh, and, women and it's only important. one. It's only yeah, other, it's a, yeah but it's, it's it's one part of the whole. And sometimes yes. uh, in arguing the position of women, um, uh, your point about how it's actually a much more it's a much more whole thing about injustice, and and has to be seen in that way. And and I think that's the position from which well, I come. The other thing is that women cannot quotes, get power all by themselves. Yeah. Uh, there's always, that. there's always has to be a certain number of committed men who think that's, who, who agree that that's the way it should equalize out more. And, every, and that it might be good for them too. Well, and whether, sometimes they think that. Sometimes they just are fair-minded people like John Stuart Mill mm-hmm. um, with forceful wives. And... That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> quite... <laughs> Uh, but but they think of it as a whole problem, not just as you know women over here. So and, and I think it has to be seen as a whole problem. And one of the things that not all society all over the world, but certain parts of Western society now have to deal with is okay. We've improved the position of women. We've done this and that and this and that and this and that. Uh, but it is a balance. What are you doing for young? Adolescent men. Yeah, it's one of the things that's actually come up in this last few off, days. Are they falling off the end of the bridge um, because people have not thought through that end of things? Yeah. In your writing, I mean, one of the, the things that is fascinating to me is the way that you've continued to sort of um, be ahead of the game in... in uh, in recognizing things that are going to present us with ethical or uh, other problems, legal problems. And, uh, and in Handmaid's Tale, I mean, you actually engage with the whole business of fertility um, and, uh, and the ways in which advances in, um, uh, you know, with regard to women's fertility could be ab- abused. Um, and uh, and I, I, I saw that again when you were dealing with the whole business of genetics and, uh, and the sort of gene splicing and creating a sort of genetically modified people in the Crakers, in uh, Oryx and Crake, um, that somehow before these things were being publicly debated about a possible downside, you were on the game already. Do you read scientific journals? Yes. 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 Not just, I read pop science. Mm-hmm. So pop science is the kind with colorful pictures. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things that colorful yeah. pictures are of aren't, aren't really that color. Yeah, but okay. it makes it look very attractive. Yes. And so I like of... those kinds. And I like the kinds where the people have done the research mm-hmm. and will tell me the results without me actually having to do it. But I did grow up with the biologists And one of the first things any real scientist is going to question about any study is, okay, who did it? Um, Has it been peer-reviewed? Is it replicable? That is, can somebody else use the same method and get the same result? And how credible is this? 
And what about this other thing that they may not have thought about? So my dad used to tell a joke about the scientists who's do, doing a study on what makes people drunk. And uh, so he, he serves up um, rye and ginger ale and rum and ginger ale and scotch and ginger ale and, and vodka and ginger ale and gin and ginger ale. And in every single case, the people get drunk. So he thinks, well, the common factor must be the ginger, ginger ale. ale. <laughs> so, so, he, yeah. so you have to... Um, yeah. You, you, science is always questioning itself, which means that its, its enemies are saying, well, they were wrong about that. Mm. Uh, the beauty of it is that when they are wrong about that, they say they were wrong about that most of the time. Though we all need to read a book called Big Pharma and mm. another one mm. called Bad Science. Yeah, because we, we do know that there are those who will um, fiddle the results. For oh, the... outright plain lie. Yeah, yeah. And, and then not be questioned by by people who happen to think their story is a sexy story. That, that's what happened with the um, link between autism and, and vaccination. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a lie. But where, but where does the corruption lie? In, it's usually in money. Um, not always. But Sometimes not always. it's just plain old credibility of people, and mm-hmm. they're given a story they would rather believe. Mm-hmm. One of the other areas that you, um, in, in your recent novel, which is part of this fabulous trilogy, which you, all, all of you should read, um, is, is, uh, is, well, no, in Mad Adam, the, the, the business of, of the hacker, of the hacker. I mean, before, oh, hacking, we, yeah. before we knew the extent to which, the, you know, through Snowden, uh, the NSA and all of that, you were busy hanging out with hackers, finding out how hacking not, was not done. Not just the hackers, the people who investigate hackers too. Uh-huh. So there is an, an organization in Toronto where I live called the Citizen Lab. You can find it online. That's what they do. So they were the people who found out some years ago that um, p- people in China were hacking into computers such as that they were looking at you through the little camera. And uh, they also found out that somebody had hacked the Indian military uh, thus giving them access to everybody that the Indian military in touch with. was in bed with. Mm-hmm. And they have a very, very interesting conference every year, uh, which takes a theme in this area. And the first one that I went to, they had all of these experts on the Internet up on stage, and they said, so our theme this year is Internet security. And then they all started laughing. <laughs> because, in fact... Yeah. Um, there is none. There are levels of security, but all you need is someone with the key. So what uh, digitization, miniaturization has made possible is that someone can download uh, thousands of documents onto a little memory key and walk out the door with it, whereas paper, with paper that would not have been possible. Because I'm a civil liberties lawyer, people always come up to me and say to me, but you know, um, I've got nothing to fear at. There's nothing. I, I do not fear this kind of intrusion because well, I have nothing to hide. The person who says that is, is not anybody who's got any IP, mm-hmm. uh, is not an entrepreneur, is not developing things they hope to be able to patent. They're not doing any of these things. And um, people talk, talk a lot about you know, personal liberty and maybe they shouldn't have my medical records and that kinds of thing. But the, the real business is in, is, uh, in, in industrial espionage. Mm-hmm. So how do we feel about that? And I'm sure that uh, the more that becomes something people are aware of, then well, they're not going governments to send, might be they're, less. They're not going to send things over the Internet, are they? 
now that we're we all going to go back this. to writing I'm, notes. The and... Kremlin has already bought up a bunch of typewriters. Oh, really? They did that last year. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be back to the age of Sherlock Holmes and, or even the age of Graham Greene and the microdots. Remember them? Yes. Microdots. Are we going to write in, in invisible ink? You want to be really, really secure? <laughs> yeah, I Here's do. Here's how. You go into the room with the person to whom you wish to impart the information. You don't speak because it could be bugged. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're out of camera range. You put a big black sheet over you or something. And you exchange a piece of paper. The other person reads and then burns. Well, what happens That's when I secure. go to prisons, I have to tell you, already when I go to prisons to see my, my clients... That's what I do because I represent uh, people so charged with terrorism. I write on bits, bits of paper and they write it back. And then when I go out, I take the bit of paper, fold it up very small, and it will be destroyed in precisely the way that you say. You burnt it. Yeah. Maybe you should burn it before you go out. They wouldn't let me into the prison they with matches. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you and I should talk more about the possibilities here. I think I need your help. <laughs> but uh, you sound as if you're doing okay. Uh-huh. But, but I want, I want to, I want, our session here is about what matters to Margaret Atwood. And, uh, and obviously you are interested in, in the direction of travel, what the downsides of certain things could be. And you're alert to all of that and then you're ahead of the game on it um, because you're interested in science. Not, you know, not many people in the literary world actually are as knowledgeable about science as you are. But, but what, are, what, are the, what are the other things that are kind of keeping you awake at night? There are no other things. Mm. Uh, or to put it in a short form, um, unless we pay a lot more attention to the natural world, we're going down. Short form, if we kill the ocean, never mind the ants. Ants are important. Bees are important. But if we kill the ocean, there goes our oxygen supply. Uh, oxygen was made... 1.9 billion years ago by a plant form. Uh, so marine algae now makes 60 to 80% of the oxygen we breathe. Uh, and if we kill the oceans, there it goes. So that's the most important thing. Uh, now mind you, unless we spill a lot of Agent Orange into the ocean tomorrow, I'm probably going to be... Can I use the D word here? You can. I'm going to be the D word... Uh, before that happens. Mm-hmm. So it won't be my problem. But it will be the problem of a lot of you. And if I were you, I'd start thinking about that pretty quickly and start doing something about toxins we're dumping into the ocean uh, and um, the plastic problem. Now, because this is what's going to kill us eventually, never mind global warming. And global, they're, they're joined, by the way. If the temperature goes... If the, if the oceans heat up to a, to a certain extent, there goes our oxygen supply anyway. You've been... I mean, you've become quite a, a voice on the whole business of environmental uh, issues and on, and on global uh, climate change and global warming. Um, you know, is... is um, I mean, do you think that your fame has been helpful in trying to get this onto a higher level in the agenda? Or not, is it really, not really, no. no. People think if you're a writer, you're a flake anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, you can draw attention to other people's studies and uh, things that people who are doing the chemistry and physics are saying. 
but they're not going to believe you just because you're a well-known writer. It's a bit of a Cassandra thing. Well, of course, she writes science fiction. Science fiction, by the way, can also be a derogatory term, meaning uh, flaky and weird. Mm. But on that business, Canada um, is an an interesting... It's it's interesting that you... um, are seen as the great Canadian export. You and maple syrup are the two big things that people think of immediately Is that what they when they think, think of, of ca- Canada. Yes. they thought of hockey. Uh, no, I think that you're up there ahead of hockey. I don't think Certainly so. For, no. for British, for the British, you are certainly not in Canada. Not in Canada. Yeah, hockey's way bigger. Is but it? luckily, I have a hockey video on YouTube. You do? Yeah, a do. Margaret Atwood playing hockey? No. I'm a goalie. You're a goalie yes, in the hockey. I'm a goalie. Did you? Have you? trained in this field this is this is an expose none of you knew this before no you didn't yeah Uh, okay so you go on you put rick mercer margaret atwood goalie Uh and you can see the goalie video and you're getting lots of hits oh this was several years ago yes it's 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 been well viewed Uh uh-huh okay um uh but you've become the kind of voice for canada and hockey and hockey (laughs) You, maple syrup can, and hockey, okay. Um, and one of the things that you write about, though, is, is somehow um, what, what it is that, that makes Canada this place for where, for me as a lawyer, it is one of the, the great beacons in the world around issues like human rights. Well, basically. that's okay. Our government's whittling away at that. Your, gov- your, government, your current government's not doing t- too well on it. But by and large, you've produced great judges. All those people, Louise Arbour now, the, the, the High Commissioner at the UN on Human Rights, those uh, fabulous uh, judges, and a lot of them women, led the way on getting women into the higher judiciary. Lots of good decisions on, on tons of things to do with human rights. Bad track record on the treatment of the Native, Amer- Native Canadians. Um, and you've written about something that, I, that has captivated me, which was the business of the sort of victim-victor um, aspect. This of goes the- way back to 1972. Yeah, but, it, but, it's, yeah. but it's, it's remained yeah. a debating issue in sure. Canada. And I was at something recently, um, at the, they're creating a new museum of human rights, and it was one of the things that they spoke about when, they were, when people were thrilled and excited that I was going to have this opportunity of meeting you, um, said that you were the person who actually raised this issue of, oh. of, of, of how in the kind of national psyche there is this division this, this sense of victimhood for, for, and the sense of, of being victim. Who, Can you explain who's to people down, what you who's mean? Up, who's up, who's who's up and who's down? Yes. Um, okay. What we're talking about is a 1972 book called uh, Survival which came out of the fact that I was uh, a part founder of a small publishing company in the 60s because we didn't have publishing companies that would publish the work of new writers. So a couple of um, publishing houses were instituted then, and as usual with publishing houses, we found that if we were publishing only poetry and literary fiction, we were going to go broke. So So we had to have a line of books on um, more widely... Uh, available subjects. So we had one called Law, 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 which was how to do your own divorce, write your own will. Um, this is before the idiot guides. We kind of were Got early, there first. early idiot guide writers. Yeah. We had one called VD, 
which was the first book on venereal disease, sort of how-to book of... Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got as far as warts. We didn't get as far as AIDS. Uh, so they, these were the books that were supporting our literary line. And so I said, let's do one on Canadian literature because there isn't one. You know, there, just, there wasn't one at that time. So we did it, and we did it fairly quickly. That's the book you're talking about. Yeah. And we thought we would sell maybe 5,000 copies tops. Uh, but it hit a nerve and it became a mega bestseller because it was about um, what is the core of the Canadian psyche as revealed through the literature? How does it differ from American literature on the one hand and British literature on the other hand? And this was part of the um, syndrome that I was exploring. So it's called A Thematic Guide to Canadian Literature. It looks at uh, nature in relation to people the second chapter is First Peoples. It's the aboriginal mm. uh, issue. And it does have a chapter on women. It's got a chapter on Quebec and so forth. And um, so that was one of the magnifying glasses that w- were being brought to bear on the distinctions in Canadian literature. What are its themes? What are its approaches? Um, give you an example American literature, just take animals. American literature, you kill the whale. Mm-hmm. Or the bear. And in Canadian? Or, um, you still kill the animal, but it's the animal telling the story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it looks quite different. It looks quite different that way around. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that people are going to want to come in and talk with you, but I want to just uh, do a little quote from you. You said... You said at one stage that the act of naming is the great and solemn consolation of mankind. Did I say that? You did actually. Did you not know that? Sounds you like say a quote these from wise things. Else. No. <laughs> and, uh, and, and of course, naming is one of the things that we feel that we're involved in here the idea of identity, the issue that you took up with Canadian identity. I'd like people to come in in the audience and ask Margaret some questions about uh, the things that they associate with her wonderful writing. Can we take the microphones there? Can we up the lights a little bit so that we can see? There's a hand there to the right I can see, just up here, please. Um, Peter Bale. Um, Mark, may I ask you two questions? Could, it, could anyone other than a Canadian have written the books that you have? And your description of dystopian, eustopian, utopian societies. Are you a little bit worried that perhaps some in Silicon Valley now are in exactly that, that mindset? Okay, so yeah. the first question was, could anyone other than a Canadian have written the books that I have written? Okay, a scientist would say it's impossible to answer that question because there is no control case. <laughs> you see? So you can't... <laughs> You can't get a non-Canadian and put them in exactly the same circumstances as me, except not in Canada, and then uh, see what would come out. It's just not a a possible question. Uh, I think that, I don't know, maybe some of them yes, others no. Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley. What what was the question? Well, the question on Silicon Valley was, you know, there's so much going on there now with the development of of new technologies. Do you see something seriously dystopian coming out of all of that? Okay, so what are the things that are really necessary to make the new technologies work? You know, they are. The physical 
stuff that makes them go. Rare earths, okay. Um, so that's yeah. that's the key. How much of this can we uh, can we actually make? How, how much how much technology technology? And notice that we now use that word, which ought to mean everything from a hand axe to a pair of tweezers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now use that word to mean digital technology. Yeah. That's how much is taken over. Uh, how much of this can the earth? physically sustain, especially in view of the fact that extracting the rare earths is very, very toxic. Mm -hmm. It's very toxic so far. So maybe what is needed is a new process for extracting the rare earths that is not so toxic and won't kill the environment. (laughs) Ocean. Ocean. We go back to the ocean. You have to go back to the ocean. Yeah. Young woman there, and then a gentleman over there. Thank you. Um, You talked about boys in school being forced to read your books. Should we have an English literature curriculum? Um, And how does that relate to the Western canon? Should we have a canon on our syllabus? Let's consider what kind of a being we are. Uh, We are preeminently a narrative being. If we look at ourselves and all of the other species on the planet, uh, lots of other species have communication systems, uh, often very good ones. Um, Lots of them have memories, um, but their memories are within um, their lifetime. None of them, so far as we know, have grammars that include a past perfect or a future perfect. So Rover the dog is very unlikely to say, although he may say, I know when it's dinner time. You know, it's always six o'clock. Where's, where's the person who's going to open the dog food? Uh, he certainly knows that. He knows I bit the postman yesterday and I look forward to doing it again today. <laughs> um, but he's very unlikely to say, where did dogs come from in the first place? And where will I, Rover, personally go when I die? Or even, what is the future of dogs? <laughs> but we, Dogs are not writing dystopian yes, literature. Or any other kind. <laughs> they do not tell those kinds of stories. Uh, so we, on the other hand, in the Pleistocene, I love the Pleistocene, it's so big. Um, in the Pleistocene, we evidently evolved uh, such that those with the ability to tell and understand stories had an evolutionary edge. And think of what that edge would give you. Instead of letting uh, little Fergus go off and discover that that's a bad place to swim in the river because there are crocodiles there, (laughs) which means that little Fergus will not grow up and pass on his genes, um, you can tell, possibly illustrated with song and dance, a very good story about people being eaten by crocodiles right over there and what you have to do to avoid it. So it's very, very uh, beneficial to, the, to our species. In fact, we can't help it. We're, we are a narrative being. Kids the age of one can understand uh, stories even before they can talk. So your real question is, should we pay any attention to storytelling in schools? Yes, no. 
Uh, and since you are in an English-speaking country, presumably those stories are going to be somehow in, in English, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? Kids are, going to, kids are going to be assimilating stories anyway. So should you be studying them in school? Well, maybe kids might, might learn math outside of school too, but it's, you might facilitate it a bit by teaching it to them. Good we are, we are naturally storytelling. We are not naturally algebraic. You know, that you have to teach. And by the way, we're not naturally a reading and writing being. You have to, you have to learn that. But we are oral storytellers by nature. Mm-hmm. Given your approach and your analysis, Margaret, what form might this peasant's revolt take? Oh, you mean what you should? What should you look out for yeah. <laughs> in this country or somewhere else? Let's, let's, let's say here. Let's say here. Uh, well, I don't know. I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I would say if there's a crash like the 1930s and like the one that uh, we did have in 2008. Uh, and by the way, some people did predict that and were told they were negative naysayers, and then bang, it all went down. Um, I had the interesting experience of having a book out called Payback in October of 2008, which was about debt. So everybody thought I had some freaking uh, crystal ball, which, which in fact I didn't. I'd just been reading the ads uh, on the Canadian underground, and there were so many of them saying, we can help you get out of debt. I thought there must be a raving market in this or there wouldn't be all these ads. Mm. Uh, So what form might it take? Well, probably you have to go... Okay, so if two things collapse, number one, if the electrical... if, If the cheap energy goes down, whatever form it may take, electricity, um, gas and oil, whatever it is, if that goes down suddenly you're going to have the most astonishing um, social catastrophe because there will be no way of transporting food into cities, which is where most people live now. So for a while, you might be able to dig, out the, dig up the dandelions on your lawn, uh, but that will last for about three days. And then you're going to have the war of, of, of all against all. And no matter how much money you have, if you can't get out of there... Um, in a car or a plane. You're in there with everybody else and you know what happens to money when there's nothing to buy. It becomes absolutely worthless. There's a great book called Frozen Desire, uh, which is about money, and it's by uh, James Buchan, a Scottish person. Very instructive book about money and just exactly what it is, how it works, and what it's good for. It is an entirely man-made symbol. It has no other uh, function. You can't eat it. Uh, you can't wear it. You can't um, shelter under it. It's, 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 a, it's a symbol. And that's what, what we're living on. You know, we are living in a symbolic universe that we made up. So when the real things that that can translate back into aren't there anymore, the whole thing just goes poof. And you are back to the, the knives and, and hand axes. Well, you've all been warned. <laughs> yeah, well, but I, I say, look out for this, you know, look out for the system. Don't, don't let happen 
uh, what just happened and don't let too much accumulate at the top because then it will just all topple over. For any of you who have not, not read a book by Margaret Atwood, and I can't believe that there's anyone in this room, but I, I can honestly say that the joy of the language, the wit, the fun, I promise you, in this dystopia there is a lot of laughter. So I want to thank you for enriching our lives, for coming and being with us uh, today, and, uh, and just... Being a little dark. Being a little dark, it's true, but never mind. No, not always dark. Within the darkness, there is light, and you're warning us that there could be, uh, that that we have to make it better. So can I ask you all to join me in thanking (laughs) you all. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.